0: You're listening to an ACCA
1: podcast. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, Artistic Director and CEO, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. Now in its second year, the series explores critical exhibitions and projects that have shaped Australian art since 1968 ambitious, contested, polemical, genre-defining and genre-defying exhibitions that have informed and transformed the cultural landscape along with our understanding of what constitutes art itself. To begin, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work and welcome visitors at ACA, and extend our respects to ancestors and elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people. Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of significant selected projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to new institutional models, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. The first year of lectures are available as podcasts on ACCA's website. This year, prompted by COVID, we are pleased to present the series as filmed illustrated lectures online, which continue to explore new models and modes of exhibition making that emerged in the 1980s and 90s, including the Asia Pacific Triennial and 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art, as well as exhibitions and projects led by First Nations artists and curators in Australia and internationally, among others. Defining Moments is presented in association with our long-standing partner, Abercrombie & Kent, and research partner, the Centre of Visual Art, or COVA, at the University of Melbourne. It is supported by our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R, and our event partners, the Melbourne Gin Company, Capi, and the City of Melbourne, all of whom we sincerely thank and acknowledge. For our first lecture in this year's series, we're delighted to revisit the influential exhibition, Popism, curated by then 24-year-old Paul Taylor for the National Gallery of Victoria in 1982. And we are especially pleased to welcome independent writer and researcher Judy Anneer to reflect upon the significance of this exhibition.
0: I would like to acknowledge the Jar Jar as the traditional owners of the land, never ceded, on which I live and work. I would like to thank Max Delaney and the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art for inviting me to be part of the lecture series, Defining Moments. I would also like to thank the University of New South Wales Library, the National Gallery of Victoria Shore Library, and the many others who have assisted in these complex times. You know who you are. This lecture has a number of parts or questions which I will examine, and they are What was Popism the exhibition? What did Popism mean? What did Paul Taylor, the curator of Popism, write in relation to the exhibition and in its aftermath? Who was in Popism and what kind of work did they do? Why was Popism important? What was the critical response? What was the context? Who was Paul Taylor? What else was he doing at this time? Art and Text Magazine, for example. In order to deal with these questions, I have drawn on my recollections of seeing the exhibition, knowing most of the artists involved, as well as Paul Taylor from 1977. Further, I'm indebted to the publication Impresario, Paul Taylor, The Melbourne Years, 1981-84, to very ably edited by Helen Hughes and Nicholas Crogan. This is an excellent compendium on the era and the personalities. I still own a complete set of Art & Text magazine, not least as I was involved one way and another from the magazine's inception as an idea until leaving its advisory board in 1994. Art and text in those early years reflects and interprets the Australian contemporary art scene thoroughly. Popism was an exhibition held at the National Gallery of Victoria in 1982. It was curated by Paul Taylor, the 24-year-old editor of Art and Text, the magazine he had begun the previous year. According to Patrick McHackie, who was director of the National Gallery of Victoria from 1981 till 87, Taylor approached him wanting to curate an exhibition of contemporary art. McHackie went along with the idea, welcoming this opportunity to reaffirm the National Gallery of Victoria's interest in and concern with contemporary art and the living artist. Makaki had been Taylor's art history professor at Monash University, where Taylor had completed a Bachelor of Arts Honours degree in 1978. After graduating, Taylor spent two years teaching at the Tasmanian School of Art in Hobart. When he returned to Melbourne, he was already working on everything from content to funding to design in order to set up the Contemporary Art magazine that became Art and Text. Makaki would have been well aware of the criticisms of the NGV from sections of the local art community, that the museum was a bunker for its appearance as much as for its program. It was felt that the NGV did not engage enough with the contemporary and local. While it did have a contemporary project program, curated by then curator of contemporary art Robert Lindsay, the program tended to focus on more established artists. It was also like the NGV's photography program, housed in a corridor. As far as I've been able to ascertain, there had not been a large-scale Australian contemporary art exhibition at the NGV since Object and Idea in 1973. Also, Taylor was the youngest curator and possibly the first guest curator at that institution. There were 14 artists in Popism, and their work ranged from painting to photographs and installation to Super 8 film and performance. The age of the artists ranged from those who were a similar vintage to Taylor to Richard Dunn and Juan de Vila, who were born in the 1940s. Robert Rooney was the oldest and born in 1937. The majority were born in the 1950s. More of this along with the range of media later. Two-thirds were men and none were of Aboriginal descent. Tis 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 which consisted of Philip Brophy, Maria Kozik, Lee Parkle, Jane Stevenson and Ralph Traviato, performed as asphyxiation on the opening night. You saw a brief clip from that at the beginning of this lecture. Adrian Martin delivered a lecture titled Living on the Surface in the Middle and David Chesworth performed in the final week. So what does popism mean? Was it a school, a movement, an avant-garde or none of these? In his catalogue essay, Taylor argues that the work in Popism is mainly of the photographic. In other words, the paintings, installations, performances, prints, films all depended upon or had their origins in the fragmentary images which were associated with the snapshot, the amateur or found image. By 1982, the snapshot, an analogue material image, had been embedded in popular consciousness for nearly 100 years, cinema for somewhat less time, and television for 30 years. Popular cinema and television also had influence in popism. Importantly, so did specific forms of music. However, the snapshot, like television, cinema, and pop music, did not appear in the art museum. More ephemerally, a snapshot came to be associated with fragmentary or fleeting aspects of the world or thought. And pertain to the surface of things depicted, a surface which nonetheless could be tantalizing in its apparently uncoded ordinariness. As an aside, it may be hard to imagine the NGV as it was before Melbourne Now 2013 14, where anything went in a rather different way in terms of ages, mediums, and activities. What Taylor did in 1982 was considered to be unorthodox in museum and curatorial practice. He mixed it up. In his Popism catalogue essay, Taylor begins by discussing the similarities and differences between local so-called amateur art, that is community exhibitions of painting primarily, and those held at art museums like the NGV. He argues that they are similar in that both ignore the photographic effect. They are different in that one purports to support an elite of art professionals and the other supports a community of artists who are seen as amateur. He writes, and I quote, Both have failed to recognise and admit the influence that the rhetoric of photography bears on our history and culture. The art and popism, however, involves itself with this rhetoric and it is that to which we continually refer. Further, these works use pre-existing images as givens, end of quote. And this process knowingly equals popism. Of course, the conflation in Taylor's texts of amateur exhibitions and museum exhibitions infuriated the latter, and such provocative conflations became a hallmark of Taylor's pronouncements. He wanted people to think about such categorizations. Moving on, Taylor analyzes the quality of noise or sensory interference and how, in a cultural sense, noise is akin to artifice. For example, and I quote, When a given object, pop song, image, history, is taken out of context and repositioned, it accumulates a quality of artificiality upon which popism focuses in order to assert the constructed nature of meaning. End of quote. An example here is Tis Tis Tis, performing as asphyxiation, miming to their own work, produced with an economy of means and dependent upon subcultural mo- codes of the moment, all of which are deliberately engaged with. In 1980, at Asphyxiation's first iteration at the George Peyton Gallery, a what is this thing called disco? Philip Brophy wrote, and I quote, What is this thing called disco? Why, just the latest, most exciting musical language of the 20th century, that's all. Who are Asphyxiation? Just one of the first truly intelligent bands to get hip to the new lingo. Asphyxiation is, if you don't know... Tistis disc tis production, Tistis disc, tis, the band that bravely spans the void between art and pop. End of quote. Taylor asserts that until the advent of modernism, which attempted to enshrine the primacy of the individual painterly act, copying and reproducing admired parts of culture was legitimate, a valid acknowledgement of antecedents. Popism, and I quote comprises an art which is endlessly copying and which offends modernist canon of authenticity, end of quote. The objects appearing in the works in Popism are stand-ins. The subject is absent, including in performances, unlike the deeply embodied and expressive performance work of the 1970s. Toys, clothes, pets, television and news imagery are utilised emerging from the everyday suburban image pool. Unlike pop artists from the 1960s, however, the artists in popism work at a further remove. This 1957 explanation of pop art by British artist Richard Hamilton is often quoted. Pop art is popular, designed for a mass audience, transient, short-term solution, expendable, easily forgotten, low-cost, mass-produced, young, aimed at youth, witty, sexy, gimmicky, glamorous, big business. The artists in poppism 25 years later took what they wanted from this earlier movement, which was as different in the UK as it was in the USA. There was no particular uniformity of values in the 1960s iterations, nor any desire for that then or in its aftermath. Popism, then, is simply an ism and not a thing in itself. It is a way of noting a source, which was one of many. Taylor finishes his essay as follows, and I quote Popism's appropriation of common photographic rhetoric is clearly distinct from the qualities we historically ascribe to pop. If popism is a new body of work, it is one that problematizes the concept of the new and refuses to be situated at the end of an arborescent account of history. Labeled as a movement in art, pop easily becomes orthodox. As a type of art, pop is always with us. End of quote. Popism was not a nice neat package, and there was no interest in it being so. To assist, there is in the catalogue a substantial reading list which remains relevant for the artists involved and the ideas which Taylor was writing about. The photographic looms large, as do theorists and writers such as Bart, Baudrillard, Benjamin, Krimp, Duchamp, Foucault, Hebdige, Krauss, Morris, Owen, Shacklewit, Sontag, amongst many others. Many of the artists' own writings are listed as are the journals Taylor thought relevant from Art Network Sydney to Screen London and Semiotext New York. The eclecticism that permeated Taylor's thinking and appeared in the artists' works was celebrated. Further, the importance of reading, thinking, discussing and writing was highlighted as practices as important as art making itself. During Poppism, Adrian Martin gave a lecture called Living on the Surface. He noted towards the end of the lecture that, and I quote, Poppism is the space of fabulous inversions and miraculous recoveries. In other words, it's a slippery space, like the dance floor, and deliberately so. In July 1982, Philip Brophy gave a lecture on Popism at the Tasmanian School of Art, Hobart. He spent most of the lecture discussing what poppism might mean. For him, essentially it meant now, and now is any time we are in, right now, this moment, the present. At the end of his lecture, Brophy notes, and I quote, Popism is a surface of multiplicity as opposed to a dimension of singularity, it is much more fun to slip and slide than it is to sink, end of quote. The inference being that the monocular conventions of the traditional art world, with its arborescent account of history, as Taylor put it, were exploded by the myriad opportunities offered outside that particular straitjacket. The media and tools used in Popism were considered by the status quo appropriate for amateurs, not professional artists. Canvas boards, Super 8 film, Polaroids, Instamatic cameras, Letraset, silk silkscreens, cassette tapes. Most of these had been manufactured for the family market, and they were cheap and accessible. Many of the artists included in Popism were their own theorists. Many worked in a variety of media sound, installation, film, writing. This collapsing of media specificity was the antithesis of the way the art museum operated. So was the incorporation of disco music and the comic strip, so-called low culture. Acknowledgement of an artist's label was also new and the artists in popism were paid to exhibit. A first for the NGV. It may be hard to imagine nearly 40 years later why there was such a fuss about popism, and why the critiques were often so poisonous. The art museum was a bastion of self-designated so-called high culture. In order to exhibit there, an artist had to be established, was usually a white male and have a prestigious dealer. Art museums did not take risks. They didn't mix it up. They kept various mediums separate from each other. They were slow and, as they saw it, judicious in their decision-making processes. They saw themselves as arbiters of taste and makers of art history in a linear, progressive fashion. Their intentions might be good, but myopia as much as hierarchies were fatally entrenched. Popism thumbed its nose at such practices by including young, mid-career and older artists without comment. Robert Rooney was not presented as an elder statesman who had exhibited in the 1968 Field Exhibition, but as one of a loose group of artists who had similar interests to the others. The middle generation of Richard Dunn and Juan de Vila were in some ways polar opposites to each other yet at the same time cerebral and highly erudite, both interested in forms of power and the strategy of parts. Their work, however, appeared opposed. Davila's imagery overtly provocative, Dunn's Contained. Both were consummate technicians with paint, yet completely uninterested in playing the academy's game of being fingered as an heir to the conventions of Western art history, where the story had become predictable. The largest group of artists in popism was more or less Taylor's generation, born in the 1950s. While some had had success in conventional terms early, that is, being included in international group exhibitions in Australia or elsewhere, others had cut their teeth in the Melbourne artist-run spaces, such as Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, Art Projects, or the Contemporary Art Space, the George Peyton Gallery. In 1981, the George Peyton held a seminar titled Contemporary Art and the Role of the Gallery, at which Taylor spoke. The other speakers were Patrick McHackie, Peter Tindall and Lyndall Jones. Taylor noted, and I quote, Dare I suggest that artists might return to the museums? not to impart information, but to thwart it, to shift and problematize meaning through the possibilities afforded by the fiction of the museum. On the one hand, the heterogeneity of the objects may be able to be restored. On the other hand, new and radical fictions may be substituted." End of quote. I clearly remember walking around popism, having already moved to Sydney to set up art space earlier in 1982. The artists I was very familiar with from their work in the small spaces of the George Payton, Art Projects or Clifton Hill, and indeed a number of whom were in my concurrent and final exhibition at the George Payton, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, or had been in previous projects such as the 1981 Noise and Music. the 1980 frame of reference, had migrated to the imposing and spacious, if Hessian-covered walls of the NGV. It was a moment of clarity. It takes a lot of cheek to storm the bastions of culture and fulfil what Taylor had proposed the year before. I'm now going to talk a little more about the artist and popism before moving on to the critical reception of the exhibition, and then discussing Taylor's work more broadly. Maria Kozik was part of Tis, tis tisc, made Suparate films, prints, painted, and worked in whatever medium was appropriate to her ideas. She worked with multiples often, as one can see with 500 fish at the entrance to popism In popism, the works often consisted of many parts or fragments, which in their repetition did not add up to an expected whole. What was on display was a set of loose ends with many references. The audience was expected to be active, not passive in their interpretations. Richard Dunn's essay in Art and Text, Winter 1982, The Pursuit of Meaning, A Strategy of Parts, examines this activity and process lucidly. Super 8 film was a big part of popism. Apart from its use in David Chesworth's performance, more of which later, six of the 14 artists exhibited some, if not all, their work in this form. These included Ian Cox, Jane Stevenson, Tis Tisk, and Robert Rooney. Exhibiting film of any sort in an art museum at this time was unusual and the difficulties were many, Presentation, technical assistance, sound quality, light spill, all were unresolved issues and all occurred in popism. The Super 8 movement, so called, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, relished the use of a medium made for the amateur market and home movies where they could develop their ideas and love of cinema. Super 8 was cheap to use and not noted for its technical virtuosity. Nor its longevity. In 1981, Rolando Caputo wrote about Australian Super 8 filmmakers such as Tistis Tisk and Paul Fletcher, who was also in popism. Unlike the New York Super 8 scene, Melbourne artists appeared to be more focused on deconstructing the televisualisation of suburban family values. Here is a 55 second clip towards the end of Maria Kozak's Manless a film which Adrian Martin wrote about in the same breath as Chantal Ackerman's Je il el of 1974. While the image and sound has degraded over 40 years and barely saved by digitization, it is worth watching. Manless reflects on the fantasy of conforming and the shame of loss for an ostensibly heteronormative woman. The ac- action is almost non-existent, The tableau and soundtrack mitigate against any form of emotional resonance, revealing the emptiness of social constructs. Watson's approach to painting was that of acute understanding and an analysis of the history and techniques of the medium. I think from Watson's perspective, it was necessary to use and exploit that history rather than be consumed by its weight. Painters were usually white men who aspired to the academy. Watson's execution of ideas in her work reflected her deep interest in the contemporary music and fashion scene. More aligned to live bands like The Birthday Party in Melbourne and The Go-Betweens in Brisbane than the club or disco scene, Watson picked up and painted fragments of daily life such as newspaper pages, photographs from fashion magazines, overheard conversations and fleeting images of suburban existence. A Painted Page, Twiggy by Richard Avedon for Paul Taylor, 1979, is one of Watson's most seductive early works but seductive for what reason? The thick oil paint and the colors chosen have their own lusciousness. A tension occurs between the smooth flatness of the originating page, which we recognize as from a fashion magazine or a book on Avedon with attendant caption and page number and the artist's admiration for that image and re- reproducing it in thick oil paint. The black-and-white image of 1960s fashion icon Twiggy is pushed to the right of the canvas and surrounded on two sides by intense yellow-green and pesto. The page has been gridded and painted in squares of grey to white. None of what appears conforms to painterly conventions. Howard Arkley, like Watson, trained as a painter, by the early 1980s, Arkley's work exhibited an acknowledgement of graffiti as can be seen in Primitive Gold 1982 and its now missing twin, Primitive Silver, which were exhibited side by side in Popism. Graffiti was considered by the mainstream to be a low art form and the airbrush Ackley used as a tool seen as a denial of the artist's hand. The obsessively depicted content of primitive gold, the all over flat patterning, which on closer scrutiny reveals a myriad of words and images, along with the monumental scale of the canvas and gold ground, all combined to sidestep the niceties of traditional painting styles. I recall that at the time there was some doubt that words or text should be included on painting surfaces. They belonged more properly to works on paper or sign writing. Many of the artisan poppism included words which might or might not elaborate on the images they sat next to. Juan de Villa obligingly listed his image sources down the left-hand side of his nine-panel painting Hysterical Tears 1980, and Robert Rooney simply blew up to an even bigger scale, a Communist Party membership card he had found in a book. Rooney also showed AM-PM 1974, a series of 176 small black-and-white photographs depicting his bed morning and night over a few months of consecutive days. While this work was made concurrently with conceptual and serial photographic works elsewhere in the world, it was not presented as an originator of more recent local work. For Rooney, the camera was a dumb machine to be used as such. The Society for Other Photography was one of the many practices by John Nixon. Here he and others used an SX-70 Polaroid camera, the first to easily produce instant analog photographs. The series of 100 Polaroids in Popism was presented as two rows of 50 and from a distance appeared as a very narrow and minimalist dark line. Getting Close revealed the hundred small 10.5 by 9 centimetre shots of various subjects, some upside down, none overtly related to the others. Not only was the Polaroid beloved for its instantaneity, the camera was a beautiful tool in itself. Professional photographers used Polaroids to set up shots, but artists use them for the medium's own idiosyncrasies. Immense Tiller's work in Popism, fifty-two displacements, nineteen seventy-nine to eighty, and Suppressed Imagery, nineteen eighty-one, were made of fifty-two pairs of image and text, and forty-nine canvas boards, respectively. Suppressed Imagery was amongst Tiller's first canvas board works, and were pencil drawings of images copied from a Latvian children's book. 52 Displacements was a durational work, like Rooney's A.M.P.M., where Tillers copied for a year an American artist's landscapes from a book of reproductions and showed them alongside a repeating text piece. The grid, as with Watson and the Society for Other Photography, appears to provide structure and therefore meaning, but meaning falls away as the grid is removed from its original purpose. The grid is a reference as much as a device. Peter Tindall's six works included one which he had performed with at Clifton Hill in 1981, Slave Guitars. A guitar as a music-making system is analogous in certain, in certain ways to another system, wrote Tindall. The suite of six works are closely related, titled as they are Detail, forward slash, A person looks at a work of art, forward slash, someone looks at something. Tyndall's installation exhibits likeness between the parts and leads the spectator towards an understanding of the ambiguity of description, appearance, usage, and the acts of looking and thinking. David Chesworth, like many in Popism, was closely associated with Clifton Hill. Indeed, he ran the place for a number of years, as he explained in his 2019 lecture as part of this series. Industry and Leisure, as performed in the closing week of Popism was a 40-minute work with projected Super 8 films, spoken texts, a number of songs, and part of one will be played at the end of this lecture. There was a related cassette tape and EP, along with a 16-page booklet. Chisworth has said that the subject matter is the industry and leisure of the work's own making. The performance deconstructs itself as it is presented. This knowingness of production is evident in all the works in Poppism. Perhaps it was no, because no one associated with popism played up to the conventions of art making or being an artist, that the critical reception was often so thin-lipped. Or perhaps it was Taylor's interpretation of the curatorial role. As he had said, he was not interested in buying into the arborescent account of history. In the mainstream press, Robert Rooney was the art critic for the Age Daily Newspaper, Despite being in the show, Rooney reviewed Popism positively and was promptly fired. Adrian Martin reviewed Popism for the Virgin Press, noting that, and I quote, the Popism exhibition was never conceived as anything but a provocative act of theoretical opportunism and willful dilettantism within the context of the art world, end of quote. Martin Armiger interviewed Taylor for the National Times, suggesting there was an art and text line. Taylor's riposte was, the works came first. The theory just explained what was already happening. Annette Blonsky and Jeanette Fenelon discussed popism for LIP, the feminist art journal. Feminist artists and writers had come under some fire from Taylor for not achieving their aims. This was an opportunity to take Taylor to task. The writers complained that it is not made clear what popism is and they go on to note at the core of popism, however, is a new new conservatism which precludes any evaluation of the imagery being circulated. As a footnote, with regard to the Super 8 film component, the writers observed... The inadequacy of the projection and viewing facilities provided by the National Gallery didn't do them justice. Alison Fraser reviewed Popism for the Australian Art Review. She believed the exhibition did not operate at the usual levels, and the viewer must consider the exhibition without a comforting floor beneath the feet. This must have greatly pleased Taylor. Lastly, Memory Holloway reviewed Popism for Art Network. Holloway criticises Taylor in a number of areas, writing, theory, curatorial practice. In essence, it is clear she found the structure of Popism and the writing around it half-baked. Whether the facts as she describes them are accurate is a moot point. Certainly Patrick McKackie had other views. Finally, I'd like to give a brief rundown of the context within which Taylor worked in the early 1980s, and that means Art and Te- Text magazine and its progenitors. Here is a two-minute snip of an interview with Taylor conduct- conducted for ABC Radio National in 1991. In conversation with Judy Ania, Paul Taylor recalls the beginnings of Art and Text.
2: There was uh, a need to promote and publicise and discuss all the new contemporary art that was starting to be produced in Australia, but also abroad. And to mix that up with other things that were of interest to a new generation, at the beginning of the 80s, a sort of post-punk generation that was keen about popular music and film, and mixing up popular culture with the modernist, sense, was the culmination of the sort of work that's been going on all over the world in, in Western countries that art and text was reflecting as early as 10 years ago. So really, in the decade of the 80s, subculture became culture? Yeah, for good and for bad, I think there's been a great levelling of high and low. I mean, what's high and what's low now, I don't know. I think that popular culture is the art of today.
0: What was the reaction when you started producing art and text in the early 80s? From my memory, it really polarised the art establishment at that
2: time. There seemed to be, yes. I think people were upset for a start, let me be quite frank, that this was a magazine funded by the Visual Arts Board, what was then the Visual Arts Board of the Australia Council. It was a small amount of money, but nevertheless it seemed... Why was this upstart group in Melbourne being given this preferential treatment when I was uh, promoting something that seemed to be elitist, which was this high-fashion image of art and text, as reflected, for example, in the covers that were chosen that were parodies of things like Chanel perfume or expensive chocolates? Or the side issue... The poolside issue, yes, what is the use of intellectuals to be read by the, by <laughs> the pool? That was one of the, the the effects of the debut of the magazine. It's been going for 10 years now. I think people have been able to see past that kind of brattishness.
0: But it also seemed to me at the time that one of the things that the establishment found uh, difficult to cope
2: with was that our text included film design, music performance. In Australia, as in you know, Britain and Germany and the United States, the young art scene of the 80s was the scene of the end of the baby boom generation, when there has been a great homogenising of culture, and I think people were as interested in the aesthetics of fashion and architecture and movies as they are in the aesthetics of art. The beginning of the 80s was a period after you know the demise of formalism and social realism in art, and uh, I think you know we were just more interested in this in creating taste.
0: The early years of art and text is covered fairly thoroughly in various essays in the book Impresario, which I mentioned at the outset of this lecture, but there are a few other points to be made. Taylor discussed the initial idea of art and text closely with artists John Nixon and Jenny Watson, and while American Journal October is often cited as the model for the early art and text, it is also important to consider the elegant and humble simplicity of Art Project's publications, whether the single A4 sheet or the A5 booklets Nixon occasionally produced. Despite some references to Art and Text's modish monochrome, it is worth remembering that publishing in colour in those years was very expensive, and the initial grants to Art and Text might have seemed generous at the time, but were certainly not enough to cover such costs. Making a virtue of inexpensive production values was, a course, part of the ethos of the period. The New York Journal semiotext was of, was of more than passing interest to Taylor for its covers, as well as its provocative content. Taylor initially picked up on existing milieus in Sydney and Melbourne, bringing together diverse writers and artists into an ever-changing and, yes, enlarging wedge which often thumbed its nose at the art institutions and created unprecedented debate throughout the Australian contemporary art world in the first half of the 1980s. The Sydney coterie of cultural theorists such as Megan Morris, Paul Foss, George Alexander and Liz Gross is also important to note. They had been working through the 1970s, translating and analysing texts by chiefly French theorists and looking at the way in which Australian mainstream culture depicted itself and marginalised others according to race, sex and gender. There was certainly negative reaction to Taylor and Art and Text. This was the tail end of a period where storming the bastions of social and cultural propriety was seen to be a viable and necessary activity, and people had definitely planned to do it, if not still so engaged. However, by the early 1980s, most of the smaller interest groups in the art world and elsewhere remained as smaller interest groups. They were talking to themselves and not affecting major change. Women, for example, were not gaining anything like equal representation in contemporary exhibitions, let alone anywhere else in society, and Aboriginal art was seen as having no place at all in the major art museums. Homosexuality was not decriminalised in Victoria until 1980, 1984 in New South Wales and 1997 in Tasmania. There was a pervasive message from the mainstream of homogeneity and steady as she goes. Many artists and writers, writers of the era remained wedded to institutions as they had been for generations, regardless of their own practice or espoused politics, the innately opportunistic nature of the art world mitigated against institutional change. Those thinkers and artists who were seriously interested in transformation often found themselves pigeonholed as alternative or outsider or by race and gender or both and all. Art and text changed that by forcing attention toward a plurality of views that would bounce off and enhance each other, not exist in parallel but in dynamic interaction. It was an intensely energising site, with discussions ranging from art, theory, aboriginality, subcultures, style, film, music, feminisms, gay semiotics and more. The work of many younger experimental artists was seen alongside older and more well-known artists and Australian alongside international material. As with Popism, this was seen by many as scandalously eclectic. The range of writers was quite broad in terms of positions. For example, Janine Burke, Ian Byrne, Philip Brophy, Gary Catalano, Patrick McHackie, Terry Smith, John Nixon, Ian North, Julie Ewington, Anne-Marie Willis, Sam Rody, Jodie Burland. Richard Dunn, Megan Morris, to name a few. As Taylor mentioned in the ABC interview, art and text covers were seen to be highly provocative, often brattish and facile because of how they appeared and the relationship to the inside pages. The cover was the dress, the code. It set the scene for what might take place inside. If the cover of issue one was minimalist, Taylor's editorial was similarly to the point. The cover of issue two, with its reversed-out monochrome and line drawings by Peter Tindall from his Culture Corner cartoon, was on unheard of in a serious art magazine, though it nodded towards the New Yorker. And the inside cover had a brief and pointed text by the editor, following up on his more conciliatory introduction in issue one. Number three, with its bright colours and Marilyn Monroe before adoring crowds introduced the notions of spectacle and spectatorship and was succeeded by number four with a photograph of one Vila in drag as Spider Woman. Number eight was the aforementioned poolside summer issue, What is the Use of Intellectuals? which within its baby blue and golden covers included a blistering analysis by Taylor on the weaknesses in the writing of those who had attacked popism, his curatorship and the artist's. Just as popism was a first in so many ways for the NGV, so was art and text for the Australian publishing scene. For example, the venerable art in Australia in the years 1977 to 80, Inclusive, had 14 covers that exhibited images only by white male artists. Of those covers, only three were not paintings. In 1981, Margal Hinder had a cover in 1982, Vicky Vavaresis, the mediums represented became slowly more diverse. The writing inside was less arbitrary. Taylor wrote on Greenberg and postmodernism in a 1980 issue, but it is not surprising that Art and Text One had a blank white cover, the clean slate. The status quo felt wounded, precarious, as indeed they should have been. They, too, were only talking to themselves. The 1970s had seen an expansion in contemporary art activity and support in Australia. The Australia Council came into existence in the late 1960s. Nick Waterlow's 1979 Biennale of Sydney brought younger experimental artists from Europe to both Sydney and Melbourne, enlarging discussions around art practice. The first perspective occurred at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 1981. The National Gallery of Australia with James Mollison at the helm opened in 1982, dragging state art museums momentarily into a new and more professional way of working. However, with regard to art writing and art criticism, there was little change. Taylor's multidisciplinary approach reflected the period as artists, writers, theorists, filmmakers, curators and musicians worked together in various ways. Whether Taylor began as a popularist is a moot point. His interest in institutional power and his belief that one could work from inside a conservative institution, such as a museum, in order to change it, Meant that taking the contemporary art he was interested in to, in this case, the National Gallery of Victoria with the exhibition Popism was inevitable. The following year, in an interview with Christina Davidson, Taylor reflected I got a big shock seeing Popism up, and I realised there was a much greater kinship between pictorial signification and the process of cultural reification than I had expected. In fact, the show was almost describing rather than deconstructing the order of meaning. Popism was a work in progress, full of the enthusiasms and effervescence of contemporary Popist culture. As Taylor noted in his 1983 essay, Popism, the Art of White Aborigines, Popism sought to suggest rather than define. Yet its effects are already being applied as exemplary of Australian art, both locally and internationally. Thank you.